0: So as your reward for starting your year in the Dharma, the Dharma talk tonight will include references to sex and sexuality. (laughs) This will be a juicy Dharma talk in places. The the rough title of the talk, I wanted to do this for the fun of it, is how to be a new you in the new year and as i was driving out here i heard on the radio that the way you're supposed to bring about change in your life is that you uh you you tweet that you're going to make this change and then each day you tweet as to whether or not you're continuing to make the change so there you go you can all go home i guess that's the new way now (laughs) It actually, uh, it's this all started with me, and in terms of this uh, idea of everyone saying "Happy New Year" to one another. So, in in the Dharma, what would we be meaning by "Happy New Year"? What would that mean? So, in regards to traditionally, it's sort of like, "May you get everything you want and nothing bad happen to you this year." You know, "May you have a happy (laughs) year." So in, uh, in, in the, the, the Buddhist world, it's not quite that simple. We would be saying, certainly may good things happen to you. And the Buddha talked a lot about ordinary happiness, the happiness of the lay life, uh, from having good health to having a good relationship to being debt-free, believe it or not, even in the Buddhist time. And it's, so there's... Uh, He was not disdainful of ordinary happiness but it was the relationship to ordinary happiness that he was concerned with and then a a kind of happiness that is beyond conditions, a happiness not based on conditions. So in our saying, Happy New Year, uh, one of the things we would be meaning is may you cease to be the cause of your own suffering. (laughs) May it be so. (laughs) Another thing that it would mean is, may you cease clinging to the pleasant in your life, or wanting the pleasant in your life, or grasping for ways to avoid the unpleasant in such a way that you cannot be happy with what is, not be at peace with what is. This is the power of the Dharma, is that it's moving beyond conditions. It's moving beyond the reactivity of our mind states to having the freedom of a responsive mind state. A responsive mind state allows us to have choice. So as, as I say in uh, Dancing with Life, describe this at length, the reactive mind state is, uh, is all about the uh, response be being reacting to the conditions, being defined by conditions like a puppet on a string. If, if, if the conditions are pleasant, we dance this way. If they're unpleasant, we dance this way. So we're wanting to avoid the unpleasant, grasp the pleasant. And the, the untrained mind, and you can easily observe this tomorrow, watch yourself throughout the day, and you'll see how true it is for you that the untrained mind, is mostly in a reactive mind state. That's some kind of dance with life, but uh, not the dance with life that, that uh, the, the, the one who is coming through the meditative mind state is seeking. And so we, we, we are, uh, as we come to this time of the year, our happiness that we are offering is the happiness of, of the freedom of mind such that the heart is open in an unconditional way. And then what makes this a new year? Well, it's somewhat arbitrary, right? But on the other hand, it's because of the cycle of the Earth. So as this being a new year, everyone in the northern hemisphere is experiencing the darkness, more time of darkness. And in that shared experience of darkness, we're seeing an ending and a beginning. An ending and a beginning. And this is as old as humanity. Before we ever invented fire, the darkness had its own rules. And then even after the invention of fire, there was still, because of the cold, because of all these various conditions, safety, there was this gathering during the long nights a lot of art and all was created during these times where we, it's uh, speculated a lot of the creativity, the storytelling during this time of night. And earth itself lying fertile, lying, lying uh, passive during the winter to renew its fertility in terms of the coming spring. And so when we participate in a new year, we're participating in something that's larger than our own ego. In our own ego's experience, we have our birthdays. That's a new year. Well, it's the school year for much of your life. You may have considered the new year beginning with the new school year. There can be certain anniversaries of marriage, of of various kinds of things. That's a new year, starting a new job, a new home. These can also be uh, uh, endings and new beginnings, but not shared in the same way. And it's really quite beautiful that we're all sharing in this. Quite beautiful. But it can be treated in a very superficial way that that misses the real opportunity. And so we have this idea of New Year's resolutions, but without any real reflection, without any inquiry, and maybe missing so much of what's of essence to each of us. Maybe not, but maybe. So, in this time of increased darkness, we can uh, stay internal ourselves. We can go through periods of reflection, reappraising. We can open to new aspirations or affirmations of old goals and values and become more resolute in achieving these old goals and values. As we go through this process, nothing is more useful than the cultivation of mindfulness. Because as I was pointing out in the beginning before I started the meditation, it is through mindfulness that we notice what's really true. How in the world can you move from a reactive mind to a responsive mind if you don't know what's true? So you could say that mindfulness, and it's a one word or one, one phrase uh, approach, is knowing what's true. But it's got some subtlety to it, this mindfulness. It's not just knowing what's true, but it's willing to stay with what's true. And that's the rub, you know. We touch something and we move away from it. Back to the puppet on the string we dance away from it in one way or the other. It takes tremendous courage, courage, kuir of the heart. It takes tremendous heart to stay with a lot in life, including even what's pleasant, because we're so afraid that we're going to lose what's pleasant, or we'll never have it again. So, tremendous amount of courage to practice mindfulness the way it is taught in the Dharma. So this, this is the first step in opening to the new, in you, is this cultivation of mindfulness to what's true for you, what's true for you, what's true for you right now. A long time ago, I, I mean when I say a long time ago, I mean over two decades now, I used to be editor-in-chief of Esquire magazine, and I had a column in the magazine, and Uh, One of my column titles was, Knowing What Time It Is. And the, the thrust of the article was that if you want to be empowered in your own life, one of the things you need to know is what time it is for you. Is it a time for pulling in or expanding out? Is it a time for making a change or not making a change? A time for being more vulnerable, less vulnerable, to know what time it is. I had not even heard of mindfulness when I wrote that column. But in fact, mindfulness is the way to know what time it is, to know what's true for you now. And that means this, both the staying with it, but also this way of being able then to investigate it, to bring wisdom of, of experience and just of reflection, the wisdom of others to what's true for you now and what might be called for now in the way of change for you. If we can't stay present, then we have very little clarity as to what would be a a wise direction or what would be skillful means to get there. I talk about this with such confidence because uh, for the last 20 years, In addition to having made such huge change in my life starting at age 40 when I walked away from the world to explore the Dharma, I have uh, been, I was the founder of and have led the Life Balance Institute, which offers workshops on changes and transitions. And not too long ago, I did a day long here on changes and transitions for the first time. And I've also done a lot of work with leaders, that's what I primarily do, and The Life Balance Institute has worked with leaders in terms of change and transition in their lives. But also, the Dharma is all about changes and transitions. In Dancing with Life, I go through these 12 insights that are part of the Four Noble Truths. And the 12 insights are to lead you to change, to empower you through a series of understandings, of realizations, so that you can change. And uh, I've also... Um, uh, just coming out in May will be a new book uh, called "From uh, Called Emotional Chaos to Clarity," and it too is about change, change, and more change in this way, and how how to be with it. So I tell you all of that as to ex- establish my credentials, so that you can stay with me in this exploration of this simple surface thing of resolutions. It's not just mindfulness that we need if we're going to bring in the new in our lives. It's compassionate mindfulness. Without compassion, loving kindness towards ourselves, it is very difficult to make a change because a lot of things go wrong and change. And there's a lot of uncertainty, and sometimes it doesn't work out. And sometimes we actually made a very stupid decision, you know. We do. We do this, each of us. Uh, this, it's, there's a, a lot of don't know mind. That's the proper attitude in relation to change in our life. Am I doing the right thing? Have I chosen the right direction? Am I going about it the right way? Do I really want this? Don't know. Don't know. Don't know. In the Dharma, we learn to get comfortable with don't-know-mind. We think we have to know, but it turns out we don't have to know. There's a thread that we follow, but it's not a guarantee. It's not a thread of a guarantee. There's not really guarantees in life. And as we learn to truly be in a dance with life, then we are much more skillful in the dance around transitions of making change, of, of bringing in something new into our lives. So the compassion or loving-kindness, if that's, if that's the way you view it, I would say compassion and loving-kindness. So when I say compassionate mindfulness, I mean all the brahma-viharas of compassion, loving-kindness, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. All of these characteristics to be coupled with the mindfulness all of them and each can be cultivated through practice and in relation to the Brahma Viharas, in a very short period of time can become much more powerful in our lives. By short period of time I mean like six months to a year. That's really a short period of time to bring about a change in your inner relationship with yourself. And so we use this compassionate mindfulness to decide what is worthy of a consideration and then what would be skillful means and then to keep ourselves on the track of it. As we look at change, I'm going to take you through a number of different modalities of looking at change that I've worked with with, with my clients through all these years and also uh, at, at times in working with people individually on longer retreats. So The first modality I would have you look at in terms of change in your own life is the change, whether it's external change that you're considering or internal change. External change has to do with you and another person. It has to do with you and your environment. Internal change has to do with you and yourself. The two support one another. It's hard to do external change without some internal support. And it's hard to do external change oftentimes, although it has been done without external support, external change in some instances. So, for instance, the Buddha really wanted to find what was freedom of the mind-heart. And he had to leave his environment. He had to make an external change in order to have an internal experience. That happens to us sometimes. We have to leave a job or leave a relationship or, or leave a part of the country. All sorts of things happen in this way. Sometimes we have to completely change our lives. So this external change and internal change. When people... Uh, talk with me about change, they often uh, fail to weigh equally two things. One is, uh, back up a little, starting with, so, uh, taking external change. What is, uh, uh, what, what needs to be addressed? When I pause at this time of year that's so uh, uh, built, so inviting to pause, we ask in our external life, what is calling to be changed? What is being calling to be addressed? So we take the time to listen, to feel, have this intuition. Let our heart know, our belly know, our head know what externally wishes to be addressed, what needs attention. And then, through wisdom, we both say, well then, of all of these things, and sometimes there's a whole you know, line up, right? Of, oh, I need to change this and this and this. Not practical, not doable. We, we say, okay, well, uh, what is of the highest priority? What's of the highest priority? And then we weigh that highest priority with also what's really doable? What's doable? That's this balanced approach that comes from the mindfulness. So, yes, it would be wonderful if uh, I i changed in such a way that I could play the piano. I've wanted to do this all my life. But practically this year is not the time to try to do this. And to choose in terms of priority and to choose in terms of what's suitable. It's this knowing what's suitable is called Sam pajana. Sam pajana. Clear comprehension. Clear comprehension. That's why I use this clarity in my title because it's such an overlap with Sam So this is this is this weighing of of what's the priority and what's practical. And we can winnow it down rather quickly. And the same with internal change. What internally needs to be addressed? What's calling for my attention? And then again saying, okay, of all of these things that's calling for my attention, what's the highest priority? And then of those, what's practical, what's doable? Sometimes you can't get there from here. It's really true. You just can't get there from here. Something has to change before something else can change. The patience of this, the humility of this, the acknowledgement of that we have a certain degree of ability to affect our lives, but only a certain degree. Through the Dharma, we're able to accept what's true now in such a way that we don't become miserable over that nor do we act with haste or with uh, disregard carelessness. As we see what's internal and external that's being asked for, we also then have to weigh, well, does this external and internal change, can I do both of these at once? Maybe not. Maybe it has to be external for now, or what's internally needing to be changed now. And that's okay. We wait. We're willing to accept what is in this way. And then we ask ourselves in what way do we need to do internal change to bring about an external change or vice versa, what do we need to do externally as I did with the example of the Buddha to bring about an internal change. We ask these questions in a very reasonable way, not thinking that we're supposed to be perfect in finding the answers, but that it is a an approach that's got balance to it where our mindfulness allows us to see more clearly, to know more clearly. So taking just a moment here, close your eyes for a moment. And I want you to ask yourself, what externally in your life is calling your attention? Don't try to figure it out. Just see what arises to the surface. What externally in your life is calling for your attention? It may be one thing. It may be a whole host of things, as I said. Just notice them, one after another, or just that one. And cultivate in this very moment, staying with it, not trying to grasp it, not trying to grasp the solution. If you notice a sense of urgency coming that's got this tension to it, let loose of that tension. And then let that go. And what internally is calling for attention? You will feel the priority as you open to it. what internally needs your attention. Again, notice your mind state as this comes to mind. Let loose of tension, of grasping, as best you're able. And now to go one step further, if you were going to select this a particular internal change, what would you need to do externally to allow this happen? And then ask yourself, well, could I do this external change and this internal change together? Or does one need to have priority for now? <coughs> and let that go and open your eyes. So this is the kind of little reflections that you can start to do that make a huge difference because you're not in the reactive mind state. You're bringing your focused attention in a neutral way, in a way that has equanimity, the fourth of the Brahma Viharas, to your life. And from there, things start to unfold in a very different way than when we're just in this constant reactivity. A second way that I teach people about change is in relation to the kind of change it is. And I, there's many different systems for this. I employ a three-part system around change in our life. The first kind of change that I refer to is developmental change. Developmental change <laughs> is you're at a certain age, you're, getting, you're, you're, you're going into your young adult years and you're in a transition from being a high school kid to a young adult, and there's all of that change. And then you, enter, you really are a young adult. And then there's a period of time, and you're, you're in the second phase of being a young adult. And then you transition into middle adulthood, and there's the first phase of middle adulthood, and the second phase of middle adulthood with a transition there. And uh, we know from uh, all the studies that people go through certain changes that are just brought about developmentally. It's partially driven by chemicals, it's partially driven by cultural expectations of you, and partially driven by hard economics and things like this. You have to go get a job and support yourself at some point. Although some people do an amazing job of avoiding that for a long time. So uh, these these develop, at different ages, we have various developmental Changes that are called forth by for all of the, both internally and externally, and we respond to that. It's very useful to know if that's what's going on. You're 65 now, and there's there's these changes that are occurring in your body, and changes occurring in the way you think about your life. That's because of these of, of an age kind of change. It's appropriate that some of these questions are coming up because of the fact that you're the age you are. And then there's a kind of change that I call adaptive change. And with adaptive change, it's because something has happened in your life that you now have to adapt to. So it may be an illness. You may have had cancer. It may be you've lost a job. It may be that you didn't make that transition very well. You still act like you're in high school and you're now 38 years old. You know, you're one of those Golden childs of, of eternal promise, but never a manifestation. <laughs> we run into that in the dharma. It's okay. Everybody's welcome. So, so uh, then that's an adaptive change that has to be made. You have to. You, there's this question of, oh, here I am. You know, I'm I'm still so immature in some way, and it's 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 not appropriate. So, what do I do about it? What do I do about it? Or you've lost your job or there's, there's just all of these, you're you, you unexpectedly find yourself as the sandwich generation where you're taking care of a young child and a, um, and a sick mother and uh, yeah, something has to give in your life. All, the, all the personal in your life goes away or the pr- Dharma practice in terms of retreat goes away or whatever it is. So there's, there's situations that call for you to adapt. And then the third kind of change that I call attention to is the change that uh, that I would call insight or understanding or clarity change, where you gain a new clarity, you gain a new insight as to what really matters to you. It could be completely outside of your age, completely outside of your age. This happened to me in my 20s in relation to meditation. I, I got very interested in things that, and, and, and the Indian culture would have been for a much later generation. This became very, very important to me, meditation, and I actually struggled as to uh, leaving the, the material world at age 30 because this had become so important to me. And so these kind of insight changes can occur at any age. It can occur in relation to your, your marriage or your relationship where you, you just get a whole new understanding of what it is to be in relationship. And it would not be what would ordinarily be expected of someone at your age because you're still building your family and da-da-da-da. But you have a very different attitude because you have a new understanding. Or something about work and how, you know, how, how little it matters to you what your worldly identity is or whatever it might be. And th- so each of these kinds of changes bring about something different. Knowing that that what 's happening to us that it 's happening to us because this is our age, and these kinds of things happen to people our age, or no, this has happened to me because of some unexpected thing in my life, and i 've got to adapt to this this uh, condition which might be quite unfortunate, but I have to adapt to it, and this is more different. this is not part of of, of my generation change this is part of something that 's happening to me, and it certainly happens to other people too, but it 's happening to me and not to a lot of others in my generation. Or, oh, this is some deep understanding that's growing in me, and I want to be true to it, even though it may uh, go against my my own developmental cycle in some way. So we can look at all of these kinds of changes and see what's useful. I wanted to uh, read you a poem that, that captures in this poem all three kinds of changes. And a a fairly dramatic way. It's by a a fellow named Mark Nepo and it's called The Lesson. When young, it was the first fall from love. It broke me open the way lightning splits a tree. Then, years later, cancer broke me further. This time, It broke me wider, the way a flood carves the banks of a narrow stream. Then, having to leave a twenty-year marriage, this broke me the way wind shatters glass. Then, in Africa, it was the anonymous face of a schoolboy beginning his life. This broke me yet again but this was like hot water melting soap. Each time, I tried to close what had been opened. It was a reflex, natural enough, but the lesson, of course, the other way, and never closing again. As we practice practice, in the Dharma. We are engaged in this kind of opening. Falling in love is a developmental thing when you're young. It's the first time you fall in love. All of you would remember that, whatever age that was. And then cancer is an adaptive kind of change. It wasn't there and now it's there and life is different. A 20-year marriage, this is both a, a, a In our society, something that happens developmentally and also an adaptive kind of change. And then in Africa, seeing the face of an anonymous schoolboy beginning his life, this is a kind of insight. Oh, this is the arc of life. It broke him open like hot water melting soap. So there's very different feelings. But whatever it is that's calling to be addressed in us, we do so with this openness. Willing to be changed, excuse me, willing to be changed by change. So often we want to have a change, but we're not willing to be changed by change. Isn't that amazing that we would want this? That we'd think it's possible? And then we wonder why it doesn't happen. Or we discover ourselves changed in ways that we would not have chosen. Because we didn't understand that change means being changed, too, whether it's external or internal, always. And so through this wisdom of our practice, we allow ourselves to be changed in ways that break us open, but with a measure, with what is within our range of being able to be contained now. Some people sometimes get inspired and uh, in their... their um, their appetite is larger than their capacity and they take on a change that that just can't be handled yet they're not ready for that change and so knowing this this humility this moderation of opening to change in this way at the start of our new years so I wanted to um, uh, illustrate this in some way that I thought would be fun for you, and I'm going to do this in terms of three movies that are currently in the movie theater. So then you can go see the movies, or maybe you've already seen all three of the movies. And for me, this is a real treat because uh, I have been in this workathon for 18 months, and so this this past week was the first time that I got to go to movies in a year. So it was, it was fun to see these movies and I chose them carefully and I didn't realize they were going to end up in a Dharma talk, but, <laughs> but indeed they have. And uh, the thing about movies is that a film, a film does reflect some aspect of our culture or whatever culture it originated in and these three films uh, certainly reflect uh, our culture the first is a movie called Shame. How many people have seen that movie? Oh wow, very few, interesting. Secondly is um, uh, the American version of the movie The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. How many have seen that movie? This is not a movie going crowd. And then third, A Dangerous Method. How many have seen that? Very, very few, wow. So you, you, this is like free movie reviews. <laughs> All three of these films are about sex. They did not have to be. They could have emphasized power relationships. They could have uh, emphasized the the uh, the the scope and limits of knowledge. But the way the writers slash director chose with each of these films, their sexuality is at the center of. The um, uh, of the storyline in a certain way, but for you, it might be your career, or it might be your seeking recognition, or it might be about your your uh, your your accumulating more uh, material goods, or being attractive, or being in great shape, or being. Uh, healthy or uh, being more powerful could be any sort of thing that represents the center of something for you with these three movies which we can look at in terms of their uh, the external and internal lives of the main character and we can look at in terms of this question of uh, was it developmental or was it adaptive or was it was it coming from an insight. so the first movie shame Is about sexual addiction. And uh, the main character in the story is this man who is uh, in his late thirties or early forties, somewhere in there, that would be my view of him, and his sister. And then the culture in which they exist in relation to uh, sexuality. In this movie, the man is sexually addicted his sister lacks sexual boundaries, but is not sexually addicted in the same way, but uh, lacks boundaries and, and a core center in many, many ways. And uh, this, this story is the story where you get to watch this man act out his sexual addiction over and over again in a wide range of changing circumstances. But it's always the sexual addiction. And this is the thing about what needs to be addressed. Oftentimes we can go, oh no, something's changing, it's changing in my life, but really we're just you know, sort of changing the scenery or changing the characters, but we're acting out the same old story. And so in this instance, there is this uh, endless repetitively acting out and uh, it's as though there is an external problem. And if he externally acts out long enough, then this problem is going to get resolved. Of course, it's not an external problem. It's an internal problem. And his misery around this cannot be addressed by acting it out. It is not from uh, my way of looking at this, the sexual addiction, but his lack of a mature relationship with it. That is the problem. He has no relationship to it that gives him choice. He is a slave to the addiction as opposed to being in a relationship to it, a mindful relationship to it that would give him choice. And so uh, the compulsion of obsessiveness goes on and on, and dramatic things happen, really big dramatic things happen, but then nothing really happens either. And that's the true shame. That's the true shame. Developmentally, this man has a job in a spiffy agency. He's got a very cool modern apartment. He is very good looking, dresses well. He actually looks like someone I know who also has this problem that was interesting to me. Because I going? huh. And, um, and he, so developmentally, he is on the course with his generation. He's doing well. He's not. He's not having to. Uh, 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 you know. He's. He's not losing. He's not getting behind. So developmentally, he's fine, except in that one area where he did not work out a mature relationship with his sexuality, and so there's a call for adaptive behavior. That's an internal experience, and he can't do it. He can't he doesn't think that way and why doesn't he think that way because he doesn't have insight he nowhere in the film does he ever show curiosity about his situation no curiosity no insight no it's it is more like it's just happening to him like this is the way it is in a way we know through the dharma it's not the way it is this moment is like this but there is no identity there is there is no single person that is always sexually addicted. It's happening over and over again because of causes and conditions that aren't being addressed. And so, there he is with this lack of inner clarity and he can't do any kind of adaptive behavior. There's a wonderful line in the movie that his sister leaves him on his cell phone in which uh, she says, you know, we're not bad people. We just came from a bad place. It's a beautiful, poignant line, but using it as an excuse is a shame. So the girl with the dragon tattoo, on the other hand, is a, I, this has been a very popular book series, sold millions and millions of copies, and there's a whole drama about this author who died just as the third book was completed. And, a big huge drama about that, it's a Swedish writer, and the, fr- the film was first done as a Swedish film, and then was redone uh, just re- recently as an American film. Very interesting to see that difference. And it's about a 23-year-old woman who uh, was uh, war- has been a ward of the state since she was 14, when she tried to kill her father, and has been uh, subject of a lot of physical and sexual abuse while being a ward of the state. And she encounters, she's a hacker. She's a computer hacker. Very, uh, got tattoos all over her body and a a very modern young woman in a lot of ways. And she encounters this uh, older man in his 50s who's the editor of a magazine. And they they end up solving this, uh, they start out solving the murder of a young woman that happened a long time ago and end up involved in this, solving this thing about serial killers and all this. And, it's, and it, it would in that seem like that way, a conventional film, but it's really not. It's really about her relatedness and her lack of relatedness. So she can't make eye contact with people. She sort of looks off to the side. She has no social graces at all. She developed mentally from a developmental change, she has not learned how to relate to people, including intimate relationships. So casual or casual social relationships or intimate relationships. On the other hand, and adaptive wise, she's fantastic. She's fantastic. In the film, we see her in a very disturbing way, get sexually abused. And then shortly afterwards in the film, we see her take her revenge and gain her empowerment. And a number of people have told me from reading the book and seeing the first film, how how much people with a background of having been physically or sexually abused, how seeing that film so affected them, seeing someone become empowered to not be a victim, but to be able to strike back, and how it they stayed as an inner image for them, became an inner image. So in that way, very powerful, adaptive, but again, very limited insight. Very limited insight. And therefore... The, the, this becoming empowered to affect the external world, she did not become empowered to affect her internal world. And we can be like this. We can be very effective externally, but not be able to bring that same uh, empowerment to affecting us internally. Or for you, it might be just the opposite, that you can do these things internally, but not able to affect your external world. And in her instance, she um, she has this uh, um, uh, as as she uh, she her, her caring uh, with one exception, a uh, very uh, 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 faint exception. Her, her expression of caring is sexual. That's how she expresses it, and she expresses it freely in that way. But in this limited way. And without any kind of a ground, as I ask you to stay in your body, to be grounded in the body, there's not a grounding in this. And so, again, there's this lack of insight that there's not something that's sustainable even when she gains this power. It's not sustainable to make her overall life whole in this way. Very interesting film in that way. And then the third film, A Dangerous Method, is the story of, of Sigmund Freud, C.G. Jung, and uh, y- y- this patient that they ended up sharing, uh, named Sabina. And I have a whole uh, interested uh, background in um, the world of C.G. Jung, and, um, uh, and was on the board of the Institute back east for, uh, for eight years and out here for six years. So I've had a long time and I've, I've really i uh, spent a lot of time studying C.G. Jung and his work. So it was a very interesting film for me for that reason. And Sabina, if this is uh, for those of you who ever have any interest in this, there's all sorts of articles and books about Sabina, this particular patient. And also, uh, in, in terms of Freud and Jung and their relationship, you can read all these different books about them and their letters to each other. So there's endless material about this. And the film stayed, in an overall way, true to what's in the books. I don't know if the books were accurate or not, but it stayed true in an overall way. And Sabina is a young woman who's a Russian Jew who is sent uh, to Switzerland to work with Jung for the talking cure. uh, He's working at a mental institution. He's just starting to work with his talking cure, which Freud introduced. And she's hysterical. She's completely unable to function in the world. And it started with an a, a episode when she was four in relation to her father. And this is, again, this is well-documented as a, as a story in, in real life. And though we were seeing a movie. If you go see this, you're seeing a movie. You're not seeing necessarily the truth. And so in the course of this movie, this, this young woman who externally cannot function, So she has an external problem. She learns to function in the world. In fact, goes to medical school and in fact becomes a therapist. In fact, goes back to Russia ultimately and trains therapists from being completely dysfunctional. She says early on in the film, I should never be let out of this institution. And she does this through internal change. Through internal change. She doesn't, uh, all of her characteristics that make up her relationship to uh, men in particular, those characteristics don't change, but they cease to define her. So she becomes uh, uh, successful at having a relationship and having a child becoming a mother. And in the course of this film, we see uh, the, the break that happened between Freud and Jung Freud saying that everything is the, determined by sexual, it's all sexual this all of our uh, our uh, emotional psychological challenge having a sexual base. And Jung saying, oh no, there's many other parts of that and and we see this growing fight between them about that. And there's a wonderful line in this movie where the uh, where Jung is is saying to Sabina, it, "We can't just leave" patients where they are. There's this line Freud said about uh, we move people from being neurotically unhappy to ordinary unhappiness. <laughs> and uh, Jung was saying, and Jung has had lots of trouble with the academy over this, we can't just leave them as they are. We, there must be some way to guide them to whom they are meant to be. And this this fight has going on to this day, and as mindfulness has become much more a part of the therapeutic world, mindfulness, the Dharma mindfulness, in fact, leads you to who you're meant to be. Very beautiful in that way. There's also a scene in the movie where uh, Jung is doing his early word association tests and this is the one thing that the the uh, academic world has recognized in terms of Young's contribution as he invented word association test. And that the movie's worth watching just for that, because you in some way or another somewhere in your life, have been subjected to these kinds of testing, whether you know it or not. A lot of the test came out of his early testing techniques. And so in, in this in this particular uh, film, we we see that that one can address external and internal, and that the internal, uh, the for the internal to be addressed, Sabina was supported by Jung by first being his assistant, and then by being encouraged and supported by him to be accepted in the medical school, and so there was the external conditions needed to change for her to have the confidence and the, the way to organize herself internally. And it's a good example of how this internal and external can work together. I'm given a lot of material here that's new to you and can be a little like, whoa, how do I hold on to all this? You don't hold on to it. You just stay open. And uh, this this realization that change has this multiple dimensionality to it, that's the empowerment for you. You'll find your own way through it. And so, with, in, in this instance, Jung was also changed, as was Freud, by their interaction with this particular patient. That's one reason she's a famous patient. So it is in our lives. If we're going to make changes, we do want to be open to being changed by the change. So if we're trying to change our relationship with our partner, there's we're wishing for more kindness or more recognition or more sex or whatever it is, or less sex, whatever it is, <laughs> the change you're wanting, to be willing to be changed by the change that you're engaged in. To let the other person change you. If you're trying to change your environment, allowing the environment to also change you. Because many times there's these ways that we're grasping, that we're clinging, that we don't recognize. That, the, that a lot of change that we think we have to have externally really is an internal change. And likewise, in relation to yourself, as you're trying to change something in yourself, maybe it's your clinging to your idea of how you're supposed to be that needs to change and not that internal change. Or maybe a little bit of that internal change with a lot of letting loose of the grasping or demanding or the judging, comparing, and fixing. That's what needs to change. Less judging yourself, less comparing, less compulsion to fix. So opening to this, to change from a don't know mind point of view. So we come to the end here of being able to know what's true through mindfulness, to be willing to stay with what's true long enough to have insight and regard it. To have a compassionate mindfulness as we're knowing what's true and staying with it in order to have inquiry and insight. And then this reflection of, well, what is this? Is this an external or an internal situation I'm dealing with? And then to understand, is there a developmental issue here, an adaptive issue, or is it some new insight that's bringing about this change? We support this with the paramis of patience and persistence that are taught in, in our tradition. A willingness to start over, just like in meditation. Every time you start over in meditation, you're empowering your nervous system to start over in daily life. It's so empowering to learn to start over. I could not emphasize that enough. As we're willing to accept Our imperfection, that we go in wrong directions, that we use unskillful means, that we get lost in desire, this willingness to accept ourselves as we are becomes part of bringing about change because we always have to start where we are. And so often we try to start from where we think we should be, but you're not there. It doesn't work very well. If you're sitting over here and I I say, okay, the the evening's over and you try to get up from over there, good luck. Good luck, huh? Same for you over here. Good luck. And yet we will do that because we have such strong concepts of of, of these these expectations that, as opposed to starting where we are. When we're non-judging, non-comparing, not fixated on fixing, we can start where we are, and then the change is natural. It's, it's, we see, oh, this is harmful. This is the cause of suffering. And so there's a natural response of the mind-heart to addressing what's needed addressing. And then we're supported by being grounded in our intention, the part of the eightfold path that to me is the axial point. Intention. Intention is this moment in our lives. So you're gonna bring about a change. Maybe it's about your eating pattern. It's moment to moment intention. It's this moment that you either abuse food or alcohol or drugs or not. It's this moment that you're either kind to your difficult relative or not. This moment, the intention is now. I intend, this is my value, to be kind to this person in this moment. And then we hold it all as just practice. It's just practice. Every moment that we're trying to bring about a change, bring about something new in our life, it's just a practice in living, a practice in living wisely and compassionately. It's all just practice. And that takes so much of the pain off. So to end with a little poem, this is from Wendell Berry, and it's called The Real Work. The real work. It may be that when we no longer know what to do, we have come to our real work. Repeating, it may be that when we no longer know what to do, we have come to our real work. And that when we no longer know which way to go, we have come to our real journey when we no longer know which way to go, we have come to our real journey. The mind that is not baffled is not employed. (laughs) The impeded stream is the one that sings. It's the rocks and the stream that makes the sound of the stream flowing. So not to be afraid, not to be discouraged not to be judging, comparing about the rocks and the stream of our lives, but opening to this new you and this new year, letting the sound of those rocks point you to the direction, intuitively, intuitively knowing this. So let's sit together for a moment. like to close our time together by saying loving kindness to each of you. And just have you receive this loving kindness, starting your year with the reception of loving kindness. The more you receive loving kindness, the more you will pass it forward. These particular phrases that I use are used in my Sunday evening group in San Rafael, which you're all a welcome to attend. And they came from the time that I, for a four-year period, taught in a prison. And these were the phrases that I worked out with the inmates that they were comfortable with. So each time I say them, I include them in my meta. May you be safe from internal and external harm. May you have a calm, clear mind and a peaceful, loving heart. May you be physically strong, healthy and vital. May you experience love, joy, wonder, and wisdom in this life, just as it is. Dedicating the merit of our time together as we learn to be more skillful in bringing change into our lives, May this skill be a benefit to our loved ones and be a benefit to all those with whom we come in contact. Any merit that has arisen from our practice this evening, we offer this merit to the benefit of all without preference, without discrimination. May all beings benefit from our efforts. May all beings, those near, those far, those we know, we don't know, those we approve of, those we don't approve of. May all beings find the end of suffering. Thank you for your kind attention. As you go out, there's a flyer about my Sunday Sangha that's on the table on the right. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed to continue these offerings, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.